Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So let's get started with the very first question. So this is a question from me. I said, this statement is an example of what? And so here on the Facebook page, we can see a picture of Horizons Milk. And right on the label, it says DHA Omega-3 supports brain health. And I said, what type of statement is this? So this is bringing in domain for some of our labeling. And so a lot of you got it, right? you notice that it was a structure function claim. So our structure function claims are one of our claims that are regulated by the FDA. And a structure function claim is I'm just saying what something does. So this one says omega-3 supports brain health. You know, it could be calcium builds strong bones. I'm not saying that this milk does it, you know, but I'm just saying in general. So I'm telling you, you know, the function of this ingredient. And so this can be put, you know, on food, but also supplements. Another one that's a really common answer, but incorrect in this situation, is health claims. So the big difference between structure function claims and health claims, like we said, with a structure function claim, you're really thinking about like omega-3 supports brain health, calcium builds strong bones. With a health claim, though, this is where you're saying something may reduce risk of a disease. So what we're saying here, right, could be like, you know, eating, you know, Cheerios may reduce risk of cardiovascular cardiovascular disease. You know, doing this may reduce inflammation. And so you have to have research to go after your health claim. So you can have, within your health claims, you can have two different types. You can have an authorized health claim, which means there's a big body of literature around this topic saying, you know, there's this big body of literature that really proves that this is true. But you can also have a qualified health claim, which is where we're saying the majority of the research shows this, but it's not as strong. So when it's just saying an ingredient does this, that's a structure function claim. I'm just telling you the normal structure and function. When I'm saying, though, that, you know, eating this may reduce risk of a disease, that is going to be a health claim. So that's a really good one to kind of make sure you're understanding. So the next question is I put a picture of a cake with a fallen center and I said, what could be some causes of this result in the cake? And I know you guys all love the baking section, right? I always get like eye rolls when I teach that part of my food science class right? Because it's annoying, right? With the baking, you really want to be thinking about, you know, what can cause different problems to occur. So when we're having a sunken cake, most likely is that, you know, there's too much sugar, there's too much fat, right? Kind of causing it to be heavy, pulling it down, right? We can also see it could be from what I do really often is open the oven early, right? I'm like, oh, how's it looking? And it causes it to collapse. 
Another reason that this could happen could also be that you put too much baking powder in it, right? And it rose up and then pew, kind of fell down. Like I always think like a souffle effect too. So some all sorts of different options. Looks like we got um, a lot of you guys were kind of saying those too, which is great. Next up, we have a question from a student. And remember, you guys can always post questions on the page. Um, so she says, I had this question on the CDR exam. I'm not sure how to figure it out. I feel like it's lacking information. It's probably an easier one um, than I think. And again, remember, this is why I ask it on the page because a lot of the time we overthink them a little bit. And it's helpful for me to talk about it, you know, but also it allows other students to be like, I was thinking that too, and this is how I solved it. So again, never hesitate to ask any questions on the Facebook page. So here's the question. A client is trying to restrict fat intake to less than 30% of total calories at each meal and snack. Which of the following will meet this requirement? So we have a few different options. So we have 80 calories with three grams of fat, 110 calories with four grams of fat, 120 calories with five grams of fat, and 130 calories with four grams of fat. So with this type of question, I really wanna make sure I'm giving the question multiple passes so I don't miss anything, right? So I wanna loop back and be like, wait, what am I looking for? So I'm looking for one that has less than 30% of total calories, right? So right away, I know that I need to be converting the grams of fat into calories, right? So I shouldn't be doing grams of fat divided by the calories. That's going to get me nowhere. So if I go through this, so the first one is 80 calories, right? So that's my denominator. And my numerator would be my calories from fat. So that would be 9 times 3, right? So that would be 27 calories. So if I do that, that would be 33%. Then the next one, 110 calories. That's my denominator. My numerator is going to be 4 times 9, which is going to be 36. And if we divide those, that's going to give me 32% of my calories. Okay, then for C, I have 120 calories, which is my denominator. My numerator is going to be 5 times 9, 45, so 45 over 120, and that's going to be 37%. And then the last one, my denominator is 130. My numerator is going to be 4 times 9, 36. And then I'm, it's going to give me 27%. So now I have all the percent. And again, I said I'm looking for percent of calories. But let me look back at the question, right? Because if I was saying, oh, it should be around 30, right? It's hard to pick between the one that's 32%, right? And 27%, right? Because technically 32% is only 2% away from the goal. And 27% is 3% away from the goal. So this is what I need. I don't want to just pick an answer. I want to go back to the question. So I'm looking for one that is less than 30%. So I can cross off, right? all of these except for D, which is 27%. So that one is a really great one and I'm glad the student shared because we all learn so much from that one because again, sometimes the questions we get wrong are those simple questions 
And that's where a lot of people get stuck at a 24, a 23. And they come to me and they say, you know, like, I feel like I know the material. Like, what is there to study? But you're not realizing that you're getting these little things wrong. So don't forget on the exam to study even what we might call like your simple math, right? Make sure you know how to calculate BMI, regular calories, all those different things. Okay, next one up, we have another math question. Looks like a few people gave it a try. So it, this one says, a patient is receiving D5 half NS, which is normal saline, with 20 MEQs of KCl, right, potassium chloride, at 75 milliliters per hour. In 24 hours, how much sodium, potassium, and dextrose will we receive? And this is another, like, yes, it's like a TPN, IV, fluid question, but this is another question where it's really kind of drawing on our simple math skills and making sure we can do this is really, really important. So let's see what it's asking us. So it's asking me in 24 hours how much sodium, potassium, and dextrose am I giving? So the first thing I want to do with this type of question is find out how much total volume I'm getting. So 75 times 24, that's going to be 1800 milliliters. Okay, so let's solve for dextrose first. So D5 would mean that it's a 5% dextrose solution. So if I have 1800 milliliters, I'm saying 5% of that's dextrose. So I take 1800 times 0 0.05, and that gives me 90 milliliters. And for dextrose, we can say, you know, one gram is equal to a milliliter. So that's saying with dextrose, I'm getting. 90 grams of dextrose. Perfect. Okay. Next, I'm saying, okay, I'm having 20 MEQs of KCl, right? And that's a per liter amount. So again, I'm going to, now I need to convert to liters. So if I have 1,800 milliliters, it's going to be 1.8 liters. So I do 1.8 times 20. And I see for potassium, I'm getting 36 MEQs. Okay, and the last one is sodium. So for my different IV fluids, right, I have a few different ones I can do. I can do half normal saline, I can do saline, and then I can also do LR or lactate ringers, and they all have different amounts of sodium. So my half normal saline is going to have 75 MEQs per liter. My lactated ringers will have 130 MEQs per liter. And then my normal saline will have 150 MEQs per liter. So this one says half normal saline. So that's 75 milligrams per liter. So I, again, I do 75 times my liters, 1.8. And that is 135 MEQs. So that's how we would solve for that one. Again, we need to solve for that goal volume and then say, okay, how much, what percent of this is dextrose? You know, how many MEQs per liter is this and how many liters am I getting? So really great one to kind of be practicing on too. Okay. The next thing isn't as much of a question, but definitely a great topic to talk about. Um, so this is the topic of diffusion versus osmosis. And so any question about the movement of solutes or liquid they will typically put both osmosis and diffusion. And so it's really important to know the difference between them. So when we're talking about diffusion, we're talking about 
the movement of molecules from high concentration to low concentration. So when we're talking about like the movement of sodium, right, or the movement of sugar, that's diffusion, right? Moving from high concentrations to low concentrations. We're specifically talking about the particles moving. Volume isn't changing. When I'm talking about osmosis, I'm talking about water, or sometimes you'll call it, here called the solvent, moving from areas um, of high concentration to low concentration. So what we're kind of thinking about is our water is trying to kind of like dilute what's going on. So I like to think about, you know, when we're thinking about osmotic diarrhea, right, we're thinking about there's the small intestine is filled with sugar, not as much water. So we're rushing in the water to kind of try to make it even. So the osmosis is the movement of water versus diffusion is the movement of particles. So definitely making sure you know about that. And again, when you're thinking about osmosis, you should be thinking water. So the next one too is again, just a more of a topic to be thinking about too. I've been getting a lot of students who, especially on like practice exams, they're getting questions about the stages of change. And a lot of the time when the stages of change, right, we're like, you know, pre-contemplation, contemplation, determination, action, you know, maintenance, and then recurrence. And we're not necessarily thinking about how would they ask it, right? And to really understand topics, you need to have a full understanding of the vocab. So when you're thinking about the different when we're thinking about the different stages of change, you want to be thinking about what is your client doing and what am I doing, right? So when I'm thinking about pre-contemplation, this is my client. This is when I get consulted for an, um, diabetes education in the ER. They don't want to see me. They're like, yeah, no, thank you. I have a lot of different stuff going on. So as the dietitian, in that case, our role is to raise awareness no worries, I'm here if you need me. Let your nurse know if you want to do a consult. The next step is It's going to be contemplation. So in contemplation, we're contemplating or thinking about it. So this is when you're here like, I want to lose weight, but it's really, really hard to. You know, I know I should exercise, but I don't have any sneakers. So we're having kind of that hesitancy, but I'm thinking about it. And here as the dietitian, our primary task is going to be to resolve ambivalence, like let them see that they can do this and help them to choose a change. Once we get you out of contemplation, we get you to determination. Now this is the patient who really wants to make a change. They're like, yep, my blood sugars have been really bad. I'm ready to commit. And here as a dietitian, we're helping them to see what the changes could be. Oh, you could, you know, carb count. You could go to the gym. You could not have soda, all the different things. Now, when we get to action, we're actually taking a step, right? So I brought water for lunch instead of soda. You know, I took a walk. I'm actually doing something. And here our role is to help our patients implement these changes and decrease obstacles. Once we do that, we get into maintenance. And we had a great question in the comments about how long is maintenance. Typically, officially, it's more like six months, but you can definitely, you know, have patients and maintenance before. But in maintenance, you're working towards your goals and you're working on kind of staying the course. So here, we're helping our clients get new skills. So for someone with the diabetes, right, 
They might be, we were helping them kind of using the plate method, and here we're helping them to carb count. You're kind of giving them additional skills. And then the last stage is gonna be relapse. Sometimes this is called your cards, where you've kind of fallen off the wagon. And our task here is to be like, hey, that sucks, it's okay, let's keep going. And something important to realize with the stages of change is that you can really move around them, right? Think about this for yourself with studying for the dietitian exam, right? How many times have you, you know, been in action? You're like, I'm coming to the class, this is gonna be great. And then you go on vacation, you forget about it, right? Or, you know, maybe you just took the exam and you're still in pre-contemplation. You're like, I don't want to hear about studying, Dana. I need a break. I'm not ready for this. Don't talk to me, right? And I'm raising awareness. I'm like, I'm here for you when you need me. So you can kind of jump all around too. Great question. Okay. So next up, we have another great question. So this is on the labs. So the question is, can someone explain to me why a high phosphate level would be for hypoparathyroidism? So this is our hypo-low PTH and hypocalcemia, low calcium. And why a low phos would be um, having hyperparathyroidism and hyperkalemia. And then she said... I know that parathyroid hormone increases calcium when it's low and decreases phos when it's high. I'm just having a hard time connecting this. And so this is a great question um, because it's really confusing, right? So exactly like she said, you know, our parathyroid hormone is telling our body like, hey, like, let's get some calcium out of the bones. Let's make some calcium. And so... A lot of the time when we're thinking about this, we're thinking about renal disease. So in renal disease, we're having really high, you know, PTH, and oftentimes we're trying to lower it, and that can cause us to have, you know, excessive secretion from the bones of our calcium. And when we're thinking about these, we often kind of been thinking about them more kind of in a balance. So Calcium and FOS kind of balance each other out. And when one is kind of wonky, so is the other one. So that's why we're kind of thinking about, you know, when parathyroid hormone is low, calcium is low because parathyroid hormone is being like, hello, let's release some calcium into the blood. It helps to regulate our serum calcium. And so when that is low, we're not signaling to be having as much um, as much calcium, and that can allow our phosphate levels to rise. You know, in contrast to when we have a decrease in parathyroid hormone, right, we have decreased calcium, we said high, we typically have high phosphorus, but when we're having a high level of parathyroid hormone and a high level of calcium, that's going to decrease phosphorus. So you're more thinking about that these things usually exist together kind of in a balance more than anything else too. So definitely a helpful topic to kind of review too. But I think the most helpful thing to think about it is that it's in going to be more in a balance, right? Our thinking about what does our parathyroid hormone do? It's going to regulate serum calcium. So if that is low, serum calcium is low. If that is high, serum calcium is high. And that's why for patients who have high serum calcium, it's really not effective to do like a low calcium diet. Often we see high calcium levels 
in patients with malignancies or cancer. And so often I get consults and they're like, help the patient with a low calcium diet. And I'm like, but it's not, you know, the amount of calcium we're eating isn't necessarily helping our serum levels because it's so tightly regulated with our parathyroid hormone. So the next one, we got a math question. So definitely recommend grabbing your pencil, your paper calculator. So this is a question from one of our classes last week. So it says, a serving of fruit cocktail uh, is half a cup. You buy six number 10 cans of the fruit cocktail. And um, you buy six number 10 cans of the fruit cocktail for 38 and the food you want the food cost to be 40%. What should you sell each serving for? So what this question is saying, and this is when it's good to kind of write kind of each piece down, right? So it's saying one serving of fruit cocktail is half a cup, right? So I would write that down. I'd say, okay, serving equals half a cup. Okay. You buy six number 10 cans. So what I want to do is I want to solve for how many cups. And this is why you need to know how many cups are in a number 10 can. So a number 10 can has 13 cups. So I would do 13 times 6. So if I do that, that tells me that I'm going to be getting 78 cups. But a serving is half a cup. So if I multiply that times 2, I'm going to see... I have 156 servings. So then the next thing I want to be thinking about is what is the raw food cost? So the raw food cost would be my $38 that I pay for my fruit. So that the $38 is the total amount, $38 divided by 156. So I'm going to say the raw food cost for each fruit cup is $24 sense. Right? And I'm like, okay, what am I looking for again? Let's go back, right? So I'm saying, what should I serve? What should I be selling each serving for? And so I need to recognize what selling equation I'm using here. So the selling equations are really annoying because they're not going to tell you which one you're using. You need to know which one to use prime factor pricing, cost plus pricing based on what they give you. So this is the point where I'm like, okay, let me count my ducks. What's going on? So I have my raw food cost, and then I have my desired food cost percentage. Now, I need to recognize that the only equation that I can solve with just those two pieces of information is factor pricing. So for factor pricing, what I do is I need to find the markup factor. So I do 100 divided by my desired food cost percentage, so 100 divided by 40, and that tells me my markup factor is 2.5. So then I can say, okay, I need to multiply my raw food cost, 24 cents, times my markup factor of 2.5, and that gives me a selling price of 60 cents. Now, with any of our factor pricing questions, we should double check. So what I'm double checking is if my raw food cost is 24 cents and I sell it at 60, is that a 40% food cost? So I do my numerator of 24 cents divided by 0.6 and yep, 
that's 40%. So that question is definitely a little tricky. So don't be afraid to kind of go back and listen and rewind to to kind of try it on your own if you didn't already. Next up, we have another math question. So this one was saying TPN has 200 grams of dextrose, 55 grams of protein, 65 grams of 200 milliliters of 20% IV fat emulsion. What is the calorie to nitrogen ratio? And so here, there's two steps to this equation. Number one, I need to find the calories for the TPN. And number two, I need to find the nitrogen. So the first thing I'm going to do is solve for my calories, right? So I'm going to be thinking about, okay, right? What do I have? 200 grams of dextrose, right? Times 3.4 grams per, I mean, calories per gram. So that's going to get me 680. Next, I'm going to be doing protein, 55 grams of protein times 4 calories per gram. That's 220 calories. And then for my fat, 65 grams of 200 milliliters of 20% IV fat emulsion. So the 20% is triggering me to go, okay, it's 2 calories per milliliter. So I just need the milliliters. 200 times 2 is 400. I add those all up. It's 1,300 calories. So that's my numerator. My denominator is grams of nitrogen. So you need to remember that it takes 6.25 grams of protein to get one gram of nitrogen. So if I do my grams of protein, 55, divide by 6.25, that gives me 8.8. .8, and then I can divide those um, to get... 1300 divided by 8.8 .8, and we're getting if we round 148 to 1. So that one's a good one. Okay next up we got a tube feed one so we got a lot of questions asking about you know can we do some more tube feed practice so you guys know I always think so um, and don't forget to check out the tube feeding class too if this is a trouble area for you. So I said, your patient requires 2,325 calories, 120 grams of protein, and you plan to start them on Jevity 1.2 formula. Find the goal, rate, and volume for continuous, fullest cycle. So let's just focus on what goal rate we'd need to make those calories. So what I would do, my first step is I would take my calories, 2,325 and divide it by the concentration of the tube feed, 1.2 calories per milliliter. So let's do that. So if I do that, that tells me that I need to provide 1,938, we'll round up, milliliters. So let's find the continuous one. So for the continuous, I would just divide that by 24. That gets me 80. 0.7, I would just round to 80 milliliters per hour times 24, because again, we want to give either kind of zero or fives, right? You're not plugging in, you know, 80.7. So that's continuous. What about cycle? So for cycle, you could have picked a few different things. It looks like some people did 12, so let's do that. So again, I go back to my goal milliliters. So 1,938. 
and then I would divide it by the numbers of the cycle. So we'll do 12. So I'm getting 161.5. So let's just do 160 milliliters per hour times 12. Okay, and then for bolus, you could do a few different things. Um, so I like to do four boluses. So let's divide our milliliters, our gold milliliters, 1,938 divided by four. So if we did that, that would be saying we're getting 484.5. So this one, yes, you could definitely do, you know, one. 485, but I also want to think about the tube feed cartons, which are 240 each. So I could say we need to give two cans of Jevity 1.2 at each bolus because that would be equal to 480 milliliters. So a total of eight cans. So when you're thinking about the tube feed, remember it's not as scary as you think. You need to first take your calories, divide it by the concentration, and then you're going to be able to get your volume and then divide by whatever you're doing. Continuous divide by 24. If you're doing, if you're doing cycle, divide by the number of hours of the cycle. If you're doing bolus, divide by the number of boluses. So next up, we have a question that got great discussion. So this was a patient is a quadriplegic has a stage three pressure injury. What calorie and protein level would you use and why? And so this one's a little bit of a trick because when we're thinking about quadriplegics, if they don't have any pressure injuries, they're actually gonna be 23 calories per kg. Now, and that's the kind of thing you know they're not using a lot of their body mass. But that is not counting pressure injuries. And most of these patients you're never gonna have at that level because they're gonna to tend to have a lot of pressure injuries. So a stage three pressure injury, right, is pretty bad. We're getting from, you know, kind of the outer shell of the skin into the muscle. So this is pretty significant. Obviously for clinical judgment, you'd wanna be thinking about kind of the size and how many they have. But you would definitely wanna bump up the, your calories. I'm seeing here, you know, some people are saying 30 to 35. That would definitely be appropriate. Protein, definitely, you know, 1.5, you know, and then depending on how big it is, right, you could go up to two grams per kg. So remember on the exam, you want to think about kind of baseline needs and then what else is going on. So that was a great one. So again, you could do 30 to 35 calories and at least 1.5 grams per kg for protein. Good one. So next one, we had a great question. So this one, I think it looks like it's out of the Inman. It says an AIDS patient's temperature has risen to 102 degrees. His BMR is increased by what? And so one thing to think about too is when we're having a fever, we're having increased catabolism. And so when we're having increased catabolism, we're burning more calories. So we're going to have an increase of 7% for every calorie over kind of our normal our normal temperature, right? Which is 97, um, like 0.8, 98.6, kind of different ones we'll see. You know, I like to kind of think about it, you know, like 99, 100, kind of there. So if we're thinking about this patient's 102, right? So we could be saying, you know, that he's 3, 
you know, three degrees over normal temp. So if I do my 102, right, that's three degrees over normal temp, three times seven, I'm getting 21% more. And so the options were 24%, 36%, 12%, 5%. So the 24% would be the best one. Next up, we have a question from a student. So she says, looks like this is out of CDR. So she says, this is the question. The evaluation results of two marketing programs to improve bone health in women is as follows. And so we can see there's a first program. So we see the stats on the first program is the number of work sites reached is 100. The cost per participant is $75. The percent awareness of bone health is 10%. And the percent change in bone health behaviors is 2%. For our second program, the number of work sites reached is 150. Then our program cost per part participant is going to be $100 per person. Percent awareness of bone health is 20%. And percent change in bone health is 6%. And so the question is saying, which of the following conclusions about the evaluation is true? So we have percent change in bone health um, behaviors, program one is less expensive. Then B, we have percent change in bone health behaviors, our program two is less expensive. Then we have program number one is less expensive for increasing awareness for bone health. And then D is program two is less expensive for reaching work sites. And so what you're really looking at here, and this is when you kind of need to do some math on your own, right? Because we're kind of thinking about like, what is kind of like the dollars, you know, we're spending here, right? So I, you know, and this is the type of question too, but by the time you get to the end, you're like, what was it even asking me? So again, I'm going to kind of look at the question again. So we're looking at what conclusions can be drawn and so kind of looking at the answers and kind of solving to see, can we prove it true or not? So A is the percent change in bone health behaviors. Program number one is less expensive. So what I would do here is I would say, okay, it basically costs $75 for me to have a 2% change in bone health behaviors. So 75 divided by two would be saying it's $37.5 to change per percent. Verse B is going to be saying percent change in bone health behaviors. Program two is less expensive. So program two is $100 per person, but we have a 6% weight change. I mean, behavior change. So in program two, we're going to be able to only have a cost of $16.60 or 1% change compared to program number one, which has $37.5 per percent weight change. So question for our answer here is going to be B. And this is a good question too, where don't be afraid to kind of do, um, do some other math on here too.
Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.